This is Mitchell McLam, lead pastor of Sapona Road Church in Fayetteville, North Carolina. We're so excited you found our podcast. Our prayer is that you're blessed by today's message. If you would like more information about Sapona Road Church or would like to give to this ministry, please visit our website at saponaroadchurch.com. We hope you have a great day and enjoy today's message. you Jesus. We're going to look in the book of Matthew chapter 16. Lord, we honor you. Matthew chapter 16 verses 13 through 19. And it is so good to be here with you today. It's a privilege and honor. You all are family. You've been family for a long time, and we're grateful that we can share in this moment. Um, We honor Pastor Mitchell and thank him for allowing us to come and entrusting us to deliver uh, the bread of life to his congregation and his sheep. And as I said, I believe that the Lord is writing a sentence in this service, that he's declaring victory over us because we're in a time where the enemy would have us to believe that we're losing that we are defeated, that there's nothing we can do, there's nothing that we can say, there's nothing that is in our own power to change anything. But as I said a moment ago, we are children of God. And there's something that he wants to say. So let's look at Matthew chapter 16, verse 13 reads, When Jesus came into the region of Caesarea Philippi, he asked his disciples, saying, Who do men say that I am, or the Son of Man am? So they said, some say John the Baptist, some Elijah, and others Jeremiah, or one of the prophets. He said to them, but who do you say that I am? Simon Peter answered and said, you are the Christ, the son of the living God. Jesus answered and said to him, blessed are you, Simon Barjona, for flesh and blood has not revealed this to you, but my father who is in heaven. And I also say to you that you are Peter, and on this rock I will build my church, and the gates of hell shall not prevail against it. Let's read verse 19. And it says, I will give you the keys of the kingdom of heaven, and whatever you bind on earth will be bound in heaven, and whatever you loose on earth shall be loosed in heaven. I already mentioned that we have a lot of evil, that we have a lot of forces that seem to be triumphing. And I'm not just talking about political things today. I know that we're seeing things with the election, but I'm not talking about that. I'm talking about evil. I'm talking about wrong things being called right. I'm talking about the spiritual forces that are pushing their agenda, that are trying to succeed, to tear down the people of God, to tear down the church, to tear down people so that they are not going forward in the purpose of God. Because if the enemy can ever get us discouraged and in our own pity party, then we won't be the kingdom citizens that he's called us to be. We won't be the powerful worship leaders and Sunday school teachers and witnesses on our jobs and leaders in our homes. If the enemy can get us discouraged, we'll just surrender and call it quits and God can't use us in the way that he wants to use us. But I believe today that the spirit of the Lord is calling his people to arise and understand who they are in him and that there's a work for us to do in this day and in this hour. And we can't get caught up in all the drama of our present day. We've got to have a spiritual perspective. 
we can make a difference. We will make a difference in Christ. And so I want to look at this text of Scripture, and I want to highlight just a few things from that. Because it says that Jesus and his disciples, they came into the region of Caesarea Philippi. Now, has anybody ever thought that that was important, that we should highlight that, that we should take a moment to stop and highlight the name of a place? Sometimes, let's just be honest, we roll over things in Scripture because, you know, it's just another name, and somebody begat somebody, and, you know, all these things, and we wonder why they're in there. But I think over the last 17 weeks, my husband has been uh, teaching a Bible study online, and it has made me more aware than ever before that everything is in Scripture for a reason. The name of something is significant. A place where people go, it's significant. We just have to dive deeper into it. And I'm going to be honest, Caesarea Philippi was not something that I stopped, I camped out and studied previously to carving out this message. It was always a name that I rolled over. But we can look at this and we can see what God is speaking to us today. Caesarea Philippi was not just another place that they went, but it was a city of pagan worship. It was where they worshiped the Greek god Pan. Now, if you went through any history or literature classes in high school, you probably went through a lot of Greek mythology and gods and goddesses and all those stories that they make you go through that make no sense, and you're just like, I'm so tired of this. Let's, let's get graduated so I don't have to deal with this anymore. Y'all, y'all, y'all studied those, right? I see some heads shaking. All right, y'all can be honest. We, we learn about all these things, and we think they're crazy, but there are people that actually worshiped these gods. And in Caesarea Philippi, that's what was happening. This Greek god Pan, now this is going to sound funny, and my husband's probably going to laugh because we laughed about it on the way here, but he was half man and half goat. If you can get the mental image of that, that's a, a pretty funky picture, right? He's half goat, half man, and this is who they were worshiping. And they participated in very evil, sensual, detestable acts you can look it up online, but I would advise you not to because you're going to see some pretty gruesome stuff. But they worshiped this God, and, and they sacrificed to him, and it was human sacrifices that they offered at this cave because the temple was built around a cave or what was called a grotto. And when they sacrificed, if, if the sacrifice was completely gone, that meant their God had accepted the sacrifice. But if there was remnants of the sacrifice or if there was blood that meant that the sacrifice was rejected. And so in this pagan society, this is what's so cool, what we see in scripture, in this pagan society, this was considered, this cave, this grotto, where they were worshiping this god Pan, it was considered to be the gate to the underworld. They believed that that city was literally at the gates of the underworld, and it was considered or referred to as the gate of hell. And the Jewish people did not go to Caesarea Philippi because that area was considered to be unclean. There was evil. There was this pagan worship going on, and they were not supposed to be there. But I love how Jesus always shows up in places where he's not supposed to be, that he always shows up in regions or in spaces where he's rejected or, or where maybe considered unclean, and he ministers to those people that are unclean and who would be rejected 
rejected by the rest of the world. And here in this unclean, ungodly, evil place, Jesus takes his disciples there to reveal who he was. And he asked them the question, who do men say that I am? And some said John the Baptist, some Elijah, others Jeremiah. They were, they were naming off prophets because they knew that Jesus was different. They knew that Jesus was this anointed one, but they didn't really understand fully who he was. They saw the miracles. They, they kind of watched them from a distance, and, and they knew there was something different, but they didn't have the full revelation. So first, Jesus poses this question to his disciples, but then he said, let's get personal here. Who do you say that I am? Not them, not the people on the outskirts, not just the followers or the fans, but who do you as my close disciples, those who are with me day by day, who do you say that I am? And here we have Peter who puffs up and, and he speaks a response that scripture says was only inspired divinely by God. He said, you are the Christ, the son of the living God. And this is so powerful. This is such a big moment because here, this is the first time in the book of Matthew where Jesus himself reveals who he is. And it was in the middle of prevalent and present evil. It was in the middle of darkness and chaos and confusion and a, a town of pagan worship that Jesus says, I am the Christ, the son of the living God. This is who I am in the midst of the evil, in the midst of the darkness. This revelation comes. And isn't that where Jesus needs to be revealed the most? In the places of darkness and evil and bondage and despair. That is where Jesus Christ needs to be revealed as the Messiah, the hope of all glory. And as this revelation came to them, Jesus gave them an assurance with this revelation that his church would be built and that the gates of hell would not prevail against it because of the knowledge of who Jesus was. That means that they were able, thank you, Jesus, that means they were able to march right up to the gate of hell in their day, in Caesarea Philippi, where evil was not just tolerated, but celebrated. They were able to walk up right to the gate of hell and know who they were and exalt the living God, and they were able to advance the kingdom. And I believe today that what God is wanting us to see as his body is that we were never called to run from evil evil. We're called to flee the appearance of evil and evil in our personal lives and what we act out. But when evil is in front of us, we're not called to be silent or intimidated or scared and think there's nothing we can do about it. I believe that God wants us to see today that we can march up to the gate of hell. We can march up in front of the devil worshipers. We can march up in front of those who are doing evil things and declare that he is the son of God. He is the living God, that he is the one that will make the difference and set them free. I have a friend who is at Redemption to the Nations Church in Chattanooga, and she's a student there, and they went to Washington, D.C., right in the middle of everything going on with the Supreme Court and all those transitions there, and they had this opportunity to pray on the steps of the Supreme Court, and while they were there, there were three witches that were lined up. They had candles in front of them, and they were doing whatever it was that they were doing. And as they prayed, two of those witches picked up their candles. They never lit them, and they walked away. We can choose to be intimidated, or we can choose to stand firm. 
They didn't confront them in a way that was malicious. They didn't go over there and start yelling at them or pointing their fingers. What they did was they, they stood, they prayed silently, and then when the opportunity arose, someone handed them a microphone and they started declaring prayer and intercession on the steps of the Supreme Court. How cool is that? Lord doesn't want us to be intimidated. He wants us to, to be proud and demonstrate who he is in the earth. I'm going to be real transparent with you. As Tommy and I are planting this church, sometimes it feels awkward when we're going in places of business and we're introducing ourselves, especially like when you say, hey, we're the pastors of Dwelling Place Church and it doesn't exist yet and we don't really have any people, but hey, we're the pastors. You know, it's, it's, it's kind of awkward at some times. And so we've kind of struggled with, okay, we've got to be who we are. We've got to be true to who we are. We are Pentecostal people. We hold to truth. We value truth. We are, we are going to establish who we are and not be ashamed of that. And I think that's what the Lord's looking for, not to pat us on the back by any means because we're figuring this out every single day. So it's a faith walk and a journey because we're all the time learning as we walk forward. But we've got to be unashamed. We've got to stand in Christ on the unshakable foundation. So I just want to highlight these three truths to you today as to why the gates of hell will not prevail against us. And the first being that we know who Christ is. Thank you, Jesus, that we are not walking in error, that we know the light, that we're walking in light today. You see, Peter's profession of Christ confirmed his divinity, that, yeah, he's not just a man, but he's also God. He said, you are the Christ, the Son of the living God. So what makes this proclamation anything special? You are the Christ, the Son of the living God. I think first is that we have to recognize who the living God is. Jeremiah 10, 10 says, But the Lord is the true God. He is the living God and the everlasting King. And we know according to Scripture also that He's not just the everlasting King, but He's the everlasting Father. He is the creator of the universe. And when we think that He's the creator, we take into account that He hung all the stars and knows them by name. That every mountain, like you guys saw last week, He created them. Every lake, every valley, everything. He created everything that we see. Seen and unseen. He, he created the heavens. And as powerful as he is to create all the universe, he's so personal that he created you and I. That he knit us together in our mother's womb and he knows everything about us and all of our days are written in his book. That is awesome to me. We serve a big God who knows the most intimate details of our life. Who is this God? He is the I am that I am. And when I think of that statement, I can't help but think that he's everything that I'll ever need him to be. If I need a doctor, I am. If I need a lawyer, I am. If I need someone to comfort me, I am. If I, whatever it is that we need, he is everything we need and more. He's more than enough for us. The I am that I am. He's the Lord of hosts. He's not a dead God. He's not an idol. He's not a God with a little G like those in Caesarea Philippi were worshiping. But he's a God who speaks and who creates and who gives life. And he didn't stop working when scripture concluded. There are some people that believe that. That God stopped speaking, that he stopped working when, when scripture was concluded. But we serve a God who's still working and moving in our midst today. And he's Yahweh, he's Jehovah, the one true living God who rules and reigns and who is seated on his throne. 
That's the God that we serve, whom none can compare to, that there's not one that's higher than, there's not one who can even be on his playing field because they're all defeated and they're all under his feet and he holds all power and all authority. That's the big God that we serve today. So if we recognize that this is the God, Jehovah, Yahweh, the everlasting God that we serve, what is the significance of his son? Now, most of us know this, but I think it's, it's good to be reminded of who Jesus is. It's good to be reminded of what he has done for us. That the son of the living God was the son that was sent by his father into the world to reconcile the world to himself, to redeem the world. We know that in the Garden of Eden, when man sinned, it created a need for a savior. And even from that moment that God already had a plan set in motion. If we look in the Old Testament, there's so many types and shadows and foreshadowing of the Messiah that was to come in the New Testament. There was a savior that was coming. The people of God were in bondage and we see it over and over again, but there was something better that was coming. It wasn't turtle doves, it wasn't bulls, it wasn't rams, it wasn't these things that they had to sacrifice, but it was an ultimate sacrifice. John 1 and 14 says, and the word became flesh and dwelt among us, and we beheld his glory, the glory as of the only begotten of the Father, full of grace and truth. He was the only begotten, sent by the Father, conceived of the Holy Ghost, and born of the Virgin Mary. And while he was on the earth, he was tempted in all points as we are, yet he was without sin. He was the spotless lamb who takes away the sin of the world. And so he walked out the will and plan of the Father, which was to die a death that a criminal deserved, to die on an old rugged cross, to be beaten, bruised, chastised, mocked, and nailed to a cross, and it was there that he died. But that was not it. That was not the the end of the story. There was something else that he had come to do, and it wasn't to lose. Your God did not come to lose, and he will never lose. He rose again on the third day. The, The Pharisees and all the religious people, they thought that they had done something to shut up this revolution, to shut up these people who were going on and following this man Jesus, but what they did not understand was that they they were just sparking the revolution to grow and to grow and to grow, and they were going to see revival, they were going to see their cities turned upside down for the glory of God, and I believe that as we understand who we are in Christ, that we will have something begin to stir on the inside of us that will make us want to be those people who turn the world upside down because we know what Jesus has done. We know that he laid down his life for us. We know that he gives us freedom in him and peace in him and strength and joy in him. And we've got to share it with the world. And I fear that too often we just, we're so indifferent to that. We really forget what God has done done for us because we're bogged down with life. But that's why the psalmist, when he was praying for revival, he said, restore unto us the joy of our salvation. We need some joy restored so that when we go to our workplaces and we go wherever we're going to go, so many different paths, that when we encounter people, that they see the joy of the Lord. And they ask, how can you be joyful in the midst of chaos? How can you be joyful when we don't even know who the president is? How can we be joyful when we don't know what the future holds? That's because the giver of my joy holds the world in his hand. And that's all we need to know. That whatever comes, whatever goes, that our God is enough and we're going to be okay in him. And we've got to have that perspective. 
He overcame. He holds the keys to death and hell, which Revelation 1 and 18 tells us. And so to me, that's enough to say that the gates of hell will not prevail simply because of what Jesus already did. And I'm so thankful to know that not only did Jesus come and ascend, but that he's coming back again. That we do have a hope and a promise as the people of God that he is returning for a a church triumphant, a church without spot, wrinkle, or blemish. And I know a lot of people don't really talk about the coming of the Lord anymore, but I think it's still important. We don't need to focus so much on going somewhere that we forget that we have a part to play here. But on those difficult days when we're serving and we're having bad days and and we're going through stuff, it is nice to know that this isn't forever. That there is a king who is coming soon and very soon. And I'm glad that we know him today. And that we get to ride on that good old gospel ship, as the old folks would say. Still looking for that one in scripture, but maybe one day we'll find it. (laughs) So, the gates of hell shall not prevail also because the church has a secure foundation. And foundation is important because without a good foundation, a building will not last. If the foundation is established by the truth of who Jesus is, this foundation, this rock, then it's not going to fail and it's not going to fade because he is the word and the grass will wither and the flower will fade, but scripture says the word of God will stand forever. On Christ's solid rock we stand. All other ground is sinking sand. It's a foundation that won't get cracks, that you won't have to repair. It will hold and sustain what it was meant to be built up, or what, was, what it intends to be built upon it. And the church cannot be built on any other foundation other than Christ and expect to prevail. Jesus said, on this rock, I will build my church on this unshakable foundation, on this absolute truth. I will build my church. And did you know that right here, this is the first time in scripture that we see the word church? First time we see the word church in scripture. So we have to ask the question, who or what is the church? And if you think that the church refers to a building, then this scripture doesn't mean much to you. I mean, it's a cool scripture that we can shout to and say, yeah, amen, that's awesome. But it's got to become personal to us. And I really think that that's what is going to sustain us in these perilous times that we're living in, is making the word of God personal. It's not just something that we say, something that we know, but it's something that is hidden in our heart. It's something that is applied to make a difference that is rooted in us. So the church, we are the church. What does that mean? The Greek word for church is ekklesia. That means the called out ones, a body of faithful people. We got any faithful people in the house today? Amen. Thank God for faithful people. We are the church. We can say that we are the church, but I'm the church. You're the church. We are the church collectively. And when we understand that we are the church, but we are the church, it's so much more personal and powerful because we're declaring that the gates of hell shall not prevail against the church of the living God. Now we see a body of believers right here, an awesome church. The gates of hell will not prevail against you. But Valerie, you're the church too. And the gates of hell will not prevail against you. The gates of hell will not prevail against you as individuals. You are the church. 
And so when the enemy is coming against you like a flood, remember that the Spirit of the Lord is raising up a standard against the enemy because you are the church, and he said the gates of hell shall not prevail against the church. The church is built by individuals and people. Tommy and I, as we are seeing this church built before us as we're planting, we have to remember that it's not about a building. It's not about the programs. It's, it's about the people. And as we're seeing the church being built, we need to be careful to invest in other members of the church. We need to be careful to invest in other people because one person coming in to the church to be a part of the church that might be the reject or outcast of the world can be a part of advancing the church in an awesome way. So this is free for you. Never discount who the Lord wants to use or who he wants to bring in. Because I believe that God is raising up people that don't really look like we're used to, that don't have religious backgrounds. There's someone that Tommy and I, we were talking about this morning, somebody that the Lord has crossed our paths with, and we have no idea what to do with them. They're different. They don't have a background like we know. They're from a different area, and and they think differently, and they operate differently. And we can't just become frustrated with people that think differently and operate differently. We've got to ask the Lord, how do we disciple them and how do we help them? How, how do we help them become a part of the body of Christ so that we can become a stronger unit, so that we can put more to flight, so that we can do more things together and be a team that pushes back darkness? We are the church. Thank God that we are the church. That's awesome. That's awesome to think that Jesus Christ lay down his life for us so that we could be a part of his purpose and his plan. We were chosen, we were called before the foundation of the earth. That's awesome to me. Amen. Thank you, Tommy. So how are we able to overcome? It's simply because of this. The keys of the kingdom have been given to us. Now that's a simple statement but it's powerful and it has weight to it. Matthew 16 and 19 says, and I will give you the keys of the kingdom of heaven and whatever you bind on earth will be bound in heaven and whatever you loose on earth shall be loosed in heaven. How many times have we quoted that? You know, we're preaching or, you know, we're, we're sharing in Sunday school or, or whatever and we're quoting whatever is bound on earth shall be bound in heaven. Whatever is loosed on earth shall be loosed in heaven and we get in our Pentecostal flair and we're, we're declaring it. But I think that we don't really understand the magnitude of what this verse is saying. It's saying that Jesus, who took the keys of death and hell, when he ascended into hell and he overcame, he has given us those same keys of authority to operate here in the earth. And the reality of it is, as people of God, so often we act beneath our privilege. We act beneath what God has given us. We don't walk in power. We don't walk in authority. And I think that when we, when we understand that there's questions, we have to ask why. Why are we not walking in authority? Why are we not walking in this power? It has been given to us. And, and let's pray about that this week. See, I'm not here to beat anybody down. I believe that our assignment as ministers is to preach truth and help pull people up, to build people up so that we can walk together to be a powerful force that's pushing back the enemy. 
So why aren't we walking in this? We need to see this. Let's pray for this. Let's believe for this. Let's ask God to search us to say, okay, what's, what's blocking this in my life? What is preventing me from walking in this power and this authority? And I believe that we have walked in some of it, but I believe there's more that God wants us to walk in. So if we've been given these keys, we've been given the ability to bind, to loose, to lock and release, we've been given access and authority. And as blood-bought, spirit-filled saints, we have the authority to see things change, to see things shift, to see things happen. We need to start declaring things with our mouth. Out of the mouth of two or more witnesses, the scripture says a thing is established. What else does it say? It says that the power of death and life, oftentimes we quote that backwards, but it's the power of death and life lie on our tongues. And so often we're speaking death. We're speaking death, we're speaking negativity, and the Lord wants us to speak life. He wants us to speak power. He wants us to speak the word over our situations. How different would our lives be if we really started speaking life over everything that we do? And I'm not talking about being just ridiculous and ignoring realities, and, but we've got to start speaking faith into our situations. We acknowledge what things are, but we also acknowledge what things will be. We acknowledge that we're at point A now, but we're declaring that God is going to move and he's going to shift things, and we're going to see people that are walking in error and walking away from God walk in their purpose. I recently got a new job, and it is different. I'm cleaning houses, and I'm going into houses of people that I don't know, people that clearly are not saved. And while I'm there, I just feel an assignment just to simply pray over them. And not just to pray over them, but to call out who they are meant to be in Christ. What if we did that over our family members? What if we did that over the people in the streets that we kind of speak against because, oh, they're begging again, or, oh, they're on that same corner again? Let's speak life, church. Let's speak life, a unified voice of faith, speaking life and hope. And that's going to make a difference because people are going to say, in this world of negativity, you have something positive to say. You have faith that you're speaking. And I want to grab a hold on to that because positivity and faith, it's contagious. When people say that you are sincere and that you're serious and they're believing that you're believing God, even if they don't believe, they're watching to see what's going to happen. They're watching to see if God's really going to move, if he's really going to answer prayers. And what a testimony it is that when we keep standing and we keep standing and keep praying and keep knocking and keep seeking, that God moves and we get to say, hey, the Lord did it. He did it in his own way. He did it in his own time. He did it in a way that I couldn't even imagine that he would do it. God did it. He did it, and I'm believing to see that in our lives, in this church, and what God is going to do in this nation, what he's going to do in the church as a whole, because he's given us power, he's given us authority, and it's time that we rise up and we use that power in his authority. So that authority comes from the name of Jesus. It's in his name these things will happen. Mark 16, 17 through 18, and it says, And these signs will follow those who believe. In my name they will cast out demons, they will speak with new tongues, they will take up serpents, and if they drink anything deadly, it will by no means hurt them. They will lay hands on the sick, and they will recover. Awesome kingdom demonstration, awesome exploits, miracles, and things that we can do as the body of Christ. But for what purpose do we do these things? We don't lay hands on the sick for them to recover so that we can get the glory. 
We don't cast out demons so that we can boast and say, hey, look how much power I've got. I've cast out so and so many demons and my ministry's on fire. No, that's not why we do anything for God. We, everything that we do for him should be out of the right motive and intent of our heart that he gets the glory. That if no one ever knows that we did it, he's glorified. If no one else knows that we spent time in prayer and seeking him, that he is still glorified. Because the ultimate purpose purpose and mission for us to be who we are in Christ and to do these great exploits for the kingdom of God is because we are on mission and that is for the church to be built. Because if you just go back a few verses in Mark 16, 15, it says, and Jesus said to them, go into all the world and preach the gospel to every creature, every creature, every person. We operate in this authority. He's given us this authority so that we can see his church build. That means that we play a part in that. He said, on this rock, I will build my church and the gates of hell will not prevent, prevail against it. So church, let's build the church. Let's not be afraid. Let's not cower down in fear. Let us build the church. Let us recognize that when we're fighting the spiritual battle and we're fighting against darkness and we're fighting against evil, that the weapons of our warfare, they are not carnal, but they are mighty through God for the pulling down of strongholds. You know, we hear this so often. Greater is he that is in me than he that is in the world. What if we believed that? What if we believed it? God, help us to really believe your word. Because if there's one that's greater on the inside of us, we shouldn't let intimidation rule us. If there's one greater inside of us, we shouldn't back down from any fight. If there's one that's greater on the inside of us, we should be so persuaded of standing in victory. Yes, there may be battles that we face that are big, that are heavy, that, that seem like they're going to overtake us. But at the end of the day, he's won the war. And we have to have confidence in that. We rebuke the devourer. We believe that his plot, that his plan, that his assignment, it is not greater than God's assignment on our lives. So today, I just want to say stand. Stand in who God's called you to be. Stand in the assignment that he's given. Don't back down because of the uncertainty of the things that's going on in the world around you. Or even in your personal life. I think that in the midst of 2020, we've, we've seen things so general as a whole, because I mean, the whole world is facing this pandemic. The whole country is facing chaos and division. And sometimes we get so lost in addressing all of the big things and the obvious things that we forget that each of us, we're facing battles too. We're facing battles. And we've got things that we've got to overcome, things that only God can do. And if the church of Jesus Christ is going to be triumphant as a whole, I believe that he's going to give us victory as individuals so that we can march in this army, march forward to do what he's called us to do, march forward into the enemy's camp, march forward to see what he has established in the earth to be because God is not calling us to be relaxed and complacent. He's not calling us to be comfortable. I think this year has been a lot about God trying to shake us out of our comfort zones to awaken us to the reality of where we're at in the world and to see it's time. 
It's time to stop playing games. It's time to stop backing down. It's time to stop being distracted with all the things that are grabbing at our attention. I read something yesterday that was just something that popped up in my memories. And it was uh, part of a book that I'd read several years ago. It's called The Best Yes. And it was talking about us taking on things, and especially as women, that it doesn't make us Wonder Woman to do all these activities. It just makes us worn out, a worn out woman. And I know that there's so many things that are grabbing at our attention right now. But I believe the Lord would, would call us today to lay down things that are grabbing at us that are unproductive. Things that are grabbing at us, things that we have our hands in, things that we are involved in, that are stealing our attention, that are distracting us, that's keeping us at a place of such weariness and over, being overwhelmed that we cannot focus on what God has called us to. Church, it's serious. It's really serious, the time that we're living in. I believe with all of my heart that Jesus Christ is coming back. And I think that people don't hear that call anymore because they say, I've heard that my whole life. They said it 60 years ago. They, they said it over and over and it didn't happen. And, and here we are in the midst of all of this. We're closer to the coming of the Lord. And I don't know when it's going to be. I don't know if it's 10 years from now or 100 years from now. But I do know that we have a responsibility as the church to reach out to those who are lost and dying and who are in bondage in their sin. That it's, that it's time for us to be concerned with people that are dying and going to hell. And we need to have victory in our personal lives so that the church can experience a victory collectively that when we experience this victory, it's like it's wind beneath our wings to set us forward into a, a position, an offensive position, where we're not waiting for people to come to us, but we're going to them. We're not waiting on people to ask us who Christ is, but we're going into the highways and the byways and the hedges, and we're saying, hey, you might not have hope, but we know who the source of hope is today. You may be down and out, but I serve a God who lifts those who are in a miry pit, who lifts them out, who are, who are in lost sin bondage, and he picks them up and he establishes their feet and he puts a new song in their mouth. Church, we have a message that the world needs to hear. And it's time for us to start speaking it, saying it. Some of y'all start singing it. Let the, let the song of the Lord come out of your spirit. The darkness won't prevail. It won't prevail. It may look like it's going to win, but how many of you have read the back of the book, Revelation? We understand that there's seasons in which the Lord allows things to happen simply because he's got to fulfill his purpose and his plan. And even when we don't understand it, because there's so many times that we don't, there's so many times that we have question after question after question, but I choose today to surrender my questions and my opinions and my agendas to just simply say, Lord, build your church. Build your church. Reveal yourself and who you are in the midst of this generation, in the midst of my family. Oh, God, we need to get a boldness again and just simply believe his word. Will you stand with me today? Lord, we are grateful. We're grateful, Lord, that even in the midst of an evil day that you were able to reveal yourself as the Christ, the son of the living God in Caesarea Philippi. 
And Lord, in the midst of our present day evils, in the midst of the chaos, in the midst of people worshiping idols, worshiping themselves, not believing in you, there's so many things that are out there that are trying to be accepted as truth, to try to be accepted as a way to heaven or as a means to salvation. But Lord, we recognize today that there is only one way to salvation, and that is through your Son, Jesus Christ. So Lord, first I pray if there's any person in this room today that doesn't know you as their personal Savior, I pray that your Holy Spirit would draw them. I pray, God, that they would feel the love of the Savior in a way that they never have before. Your Word says that while we were yet sinners, Christ died for us when we were undeserving, when we were walking in rebellion and disobedience, and when we wanted nothing to do with you, you died for us. So, Lord, I pray right now, if there's anyone at all that doesn't know you, God, draw them today. If there's one in here that has walked down a path that has put a wedge between you and them, Lord, you've never left them, but they've pursued worldly things. They've pursued a different path. God, I pray that you would draw them to yourself today, that you would draw the backslider, that you would draw those who are distant and far from you. And Lord, even those of us who are saved and we love you and, and we know your word, God, draw us closer today. Because Lord, we know that there's so many things that's grabbing at our attention, that's trying to grab our affection to really just distort our, our, our purpose and thwart our purpose and the plan that you have for our lives. And Lord, today we're just simply saying, we want to walk in that. We want to walk in the fullness of your purpose and plan. We don't want to forfeit any of that. We want to see you use us like a mighty army. You use us like a people who believe really what your word says, that use us like a people that are unashamed of their faith, that are unashamed of the gospel of Jesus Christ, because it is the power of God unto salvation. Lord, I pray that you would loose our tongues and unlock our tongues, God, that when we meet people, Lord, that we wouldn't just be silent anymore. But Lord, your word and your love would flow out of us like a river, that it would be, it, it can't be stopped, it can't be quenched, it just keeps flowing and flowing and flowing. God, give us a boldness like we have never experienced before, that we would not be intimidated or scared of rejection to share our faith. But when the opportunity arises, we take it and we take that stand and we share truth in love above all else. God, help us to have love at the forefront of everything that we do because your word tells us that we are known as your disciples by the love that we have for one another. And Lord, I pray that the love of Christ, that we would know it more fully and more intimately so that we can demonstrate it to others here on the earth others that maybe we feel like don't deserve it, others who have come against us and hurt us. Oh God, let, let unforgiveness not have any root or any hold in our hearts today, but God, let us overflow with love and compassion and forgiveness as never before. God, I pray that everything that the enemy has tried to root in hearts today to cause people to be distracted and downcast and, and, and bound, oh God, I pray that you would pluck it up right now in Jesus' name. I declare that it has no place in our hearts today. Pluck up the root. God, pluck Pluck up everything in us that doesn't belong. Let our hearts be pure. Let our motives be pure. Let us look to you as our source for everything that we have need of in this life. God, that when our faith is weak and we seem to be faltering, Lord, I pray that we would catch ourselves on the solid rock. 
Lord, because truly all other ground is sinking sand. There's no other sure foundation that we can build on and expect anything good to, to be as a result of that. But you alone are our foundation and our source today. If there's anybody that wants to, to come to the altar in prayer, if you just want to take time to pray where you're at, just feel free to do that. But just spend a few moments in the presence of God before we leave today. And just ask God to stir you. Ask God to awaken his purpose and his plan in you. That if discouragement has been what's holding you back, that it would be broken. You know, in Nehemiah, when they were building the wall, the enemy used frustration and discouragement as the two weapons to come against them. But they, they went through that. They overcame that. They built the wall in 52 days. Really set a record. They did an awesome thing in a quick, quick timeline. And I believe that God can do that in our lives. He can cause us to overcome those things, to do a quick work, to see what he wants to be done, accomplished. So if you will, just spend a few moments in prayer. Just spend a few, time, or a few moments with the Lord by yourself and ask God to do something in you today.